Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football recruiting and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. In celebration of Charleston Bulls joining our staff as our new recruiting writer, we're running a special promotion on InsideNDSports.com. New users can sign up for a 60-day free trial with the promo code NDRecruit60. The deal ends Sunday, so make sure you sign up before the Easter Bunny arrives at your home. The blue-gold game is almost here. We are closing in on two weeks until the end of spring football at Notre Dame with another transfer portal wave set to hit college football later this month. The landscape of college athletics seems to be changing by the month as of late, so we wanted to catch up with Dennis Dodd, national college football writer for CBS Sports. Dennis, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Uh, by the month, by the minute, it seems like, <laughs> <laughs> it, seems like it. You're right, you're right. Um uh, on that topic, Dennis, with with college basketball season now wrapping up and we're several months away from the start of football season, what is the off-the-field storyline that you're most interested in monitoring over the next few months? Well, there's about three big ones that that I think. Um, Dion at Colorado, you know, whatever form that takes. Uh, Georgia's, look, realistic shot at a three-peat. I mean, I think that given their schedule, given their coach, Given the fact, I think I just read in USA Today, they by far outspent everybody in recruiting budget, um, and they're very, very talented. I think they could become the first three-peat. Um, uh, the NCAA stuff, although it doesn't relate directly to uh, football, it it will if the NCAA is successful in getting this bill pushed through to regulate NIL, um, which the new president was hired to do. He's a former governor. He's a politician. He's a former governor of Massachusetts, Republican governor in a blue state, uh, was, was lauded for his ability to be bipartisan and get people across the aisles to join hands. So, um, you know, we shall see. Uh, you know, can Alabama bounce back? You know, this this is that kind of year where I don't want to say nobody's talking about them, but they we don't know who the who the main players are with Bryce Young and all these guys leaving. They could go fifteen and zero. You know, it'd be like one of those years we go. Oh, okay. Um, and and um, and uh, not really. It's not happening yet. But they're going to be fourteen teams changing conferences uh, this year alone. And the big ones are next year: Texas, Oklahoma, USC, and UCLA. But a fourteen-team Big Twelve is going to be really, really interesting. I think with two teams that absolutely don't want to be there, Texas and Oklahoma trying to get paid a hundred million to get out a year early. So, um, so all that. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, Charlie Baker and I'm wondering if you had to put a timeline on him having some success with that and, and what would really an NIL even playing field look like? What would, what would be the ideal what would NIL look like if nobody was upset with it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. You know, we don't know exactly what they want. They just want an exemption from Congress, the NCAA, so they don't get sued uh, if they try to implement something. And, uh, you know, uh, we don't, again, within that, we don't know exactly what they want. They keep saying minimal exemption. Okay. What does that mean? Anything that even hints of capping income, or limiting income is going to be met, met with a lawsuit. We know that. I talked to a person today who who uh, had a very interesting take. Um, 
make the NCA. Okay, the NCA does championships. They do those pretty well. And then, then just make it this brand manager where the NC, you know, you, you've got an NCAA approved uh, collective, you know, for what, whatever that means, we can make all the jokes about their credibility and everything, but, but the, you know, these collectives or, or these, uh, these NIL uh, third parties, if you've passed some sort of muster, you get your own blue check mark or, you know, some sort of brand stamp on there. I, I, th- I don't know if that's enough. But it might help regulate it. I mean, it's at least a branding suggestion. But look, there's as soon as they lost Alston and then they backed off on the NIL really completely about a month later, it was uh, it was what we see. It, it was the wild, wild west. So when you start talking about quid pro quo, um, you know, there really isn't that, you know, it, you're worth what somebody will pay you. We just saw the point guard for Miami. Get it, not just get, but he played in the final four, two-year contract worth eight hundred thousand dollars. Was that worth it? I would bet every Miami fan out there would tell you it was <laughs> worth it. Um, Nigel Pack. So uh, it's up in the air. You're right. So, from a Notre Dame fan standpoint, their worry is that there's acquisition fees and then there's legit NIL, and and their worry is that Notre Dame is not going to yeah. budge out of the legit. Right. arena and get into this acquisition fee so their hope is that the acquisition fee type stuff that's no you know that you're not doing anything really nil related for it right. goes away what how realistic is that thinking that that's that, a great question because that is something that really evolved and bubbled up as soon as the NCAA passed those minimum standards on July 1st, 2021, the word collective hadn't been mentioned. And then all of a sudden you had this, this powerful third party at Tennessee, uh, Texas paying all their offensive linemen $50,000 really for just being Texas offensive linemen. Um, I, I just mentioned the guard at Miami, the, the booster there, John Ruiz, not only did all that, but but really wanted it out there. I think the figure he paid, uh, I want to say 100 Miami athletes, I want to say $5 million total. I, I can't quite remember exactly, but um, I, I think part of what the NCAA wants and what Charlie Baker has said is he wants some sort of um, common clearinghouse where all those contracts are public. Now, you know, I would say to him, then, Charlie, why isn't yours? And he would come back and say, well, we're a nonprofit organization. Well, so are these schools. So, you know, I I don't know if that would pass. Um, in other words, you, you and I don't want people to know what we're making. What's what's the difference? I don't want them to laugh. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a comedy show for uh, for people, for journalists. Uh, but, but I don't know how they get there. I don't know... How, you know, and if the federal government does that, do you want them involved? Because look, the average bill, the average law or the average bill, what have you, doesn't contain what you want. You know, there's all, they they call it pork. You know, somebody Mm -hmm. who's crafting the bill says, oh, you can get my vote if you do this. You know, I I don't think you can get a streamlined bill for NIL. Um, There are those smarter than me in the legal profession that say the NCAA's got no shot. Those within the NCAA I've talked to, some of the ADs, people like that, really like what Charlie Baker's doing. And they said he he's our last best shot because he's 
dedicated all his time and effort since he took office March 1st into this. So if that doesn't happen, uh, you know, it, it will remain the way it is. And look, there is a way to solve this, solve, quote unquote, you uh, you collectively bargain. That doesn't make them employees necessarily. Um, but if you want to do that, if you want to pay them a stipend, it's already been talked about paying players in uh, the college football playoff a bonus, such as uh, players do in the in the playoffs and World Series, they get extra money for advancing. You know, I don't think that would be subject to Title IX. Now, it wouldn't affect every athlete by a long shot, but I think that's what's coming. I think the smart AD, uh, the smart AD these days, and I'm putting Jack Swarbrick in that in that uh, category, even though the you know the big op-ed. I think they they know in their heart of hearts it's going to come down to that. It's going to come down to collectively bargain. Okay, if you if you stay two years, if you commit to us for two years, we'll give you X. And that's not even revenue. It doesn't have to be revenue. It doesn't have to be uh, an employee relationship. But you can keep the you can keep somewhat of a harness on these guys if you make them partners. And the problem has always been, as you know, Brian, they're pass throughs. These guys, they're one and dones. At the most, they stay four years. Now, at the COVID year, they're staying six. So there's no un there's no unity there. The baseball players union has whatever it is, seven hundred and fifty members. These guys change, and girls change half their membership every year. Dennis, you mentioned the op-ed by Father John Jenkins and Jack Swarbrick in the New York Times. There was a lot in that to sort of chew on. Yeah. Uh, were there specific things that you saw that? you think are realistic um, in that proposal? And were there certain things that you seemed that maybe you felt too idealistic and, and sort of them, it's more of them like just stating their, their mission yeah. without it being, being worthwhile and not, they're not going to be able to find people to agree with them on that. Yeah. I think it was a bit idealistic. Um, some of the uh, bullet points were, you know, there was something in there about missed class time or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I thought was, you know, we're, we're way past that. Um I, I just go back. I, I did a story with Jack in 2015. It's hard to believe it's eight years now where he brought it up. This is before anybody knew what NIL was. Um, and he said, there's going to be a day when Congress gets involved. Well, that's happened or it's trying to happen. And he thinks he thought in the future, there will be two divisions of college sports. Those that follow the, the traditional collegiate model and those more of a semi-pro model. And I went as far as to look down the list and, and just cherry picked what I thought, what schools would be in there. And, and we're kind of seeing that if you believe that uh, the Big Ten and the SEC are going to run things uh, mm -hmm. financially, recruiting wise, championships, facilities, um, uh, salaries. And, and that's something I want to dig down on for my own purposes. What forms that going to take? Does, is, is it going to be a breakaway? Can everybody live, you know, under under the rules they want? Um, I think that's what's going to happen. Certainly, it's going to sh happen when they start to dig down on uh, the expanded playoff revenue, because as it stands now, everybody sort of gets an equal share. You get a bonus for playing in a New Year's Six Bowl, I think six million dollars, but everybody gets a check for seventy-two million dollars, so something like that every year, uh, at least the Power Five. So. You know, if I'm Greg Sankey and um, whoever the commissioner is going to be of the Big Ten, I'm going in that room and saying, you know what, guys, poker just changed. Um, 
we're, we're each going to split 50 and the rest of you guys, 50%, the rest of you guys can do what you want because they can. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, look, when, when you're clandestinely stealing teams, you know, from the PAC 12, why, why would that raise a, a hackle? So I think all that, all that's in play. Um, but in answer to your original question, yeah, I, I, I think some of the stuff that Jack and Father Jenkins had in there was idealistic. And I think the train has kind of kind of left the station on some of that already. Speaking of idealistic, um, you know, Notre Dame's media rights negotiations mm -hmm. are ongoing. That's coming up. And when the, you know, we all know when Oklahoma and Texas decided they were leaving USC, UCLA decided they were leaving, all of a sudden Notre Dame is in the middle of that and they're like is Notre Dame going to join a conference and yeah. calm down a little bit because Jack Swarbrick says hey we're gonna we're gonna get a media rights deal that's competitive with the SEC and the Big Ten as we approach that how realistic is it and if and if Notre Dame if there is a gap a bigger gap than Jack thinks there's going to be do you think Notre Dame finally says, okay, we got to go to one or the other of these. Yeah, that might be the deal breaker. I think you mentioned that, you know, is the money they get from the ACC, is the ACC the best home for um, for Notre Dame? Obviously minus football, but they do have a football relationship with them. Uh, and what are the new negotiations like with, I think it's NBC in 2025, that deal is up, right? Right. right, right. Um, and I thought there was a little bit of a door opened on that. I remember last summer I wrote a story when all this realignment was going on that Notre Dame, I think the number was seeking $75 million, which would right now they'd be right there with uh, the SEC and Big Ten. Now, will NBC or any other carrier pay that much? Uh, you know, it's, it's one thing, you know, uh, to have the SEC and Big Ten, but does that diminish frankly, uh, Notre Dame's earning power now that they've, they've got their hands, those two conferences, really on the best rivalries in college football. And that's what this is about, uh, really, in terms of viewing. They're going to have access no matter what. Um, right. So that's not going to drive them to join a conference. But it's always, I think, number one, I don't think it's going to happen on Jack Swarbrick's watch because he doesn't want, he, he doesn't want to be the guy that goes down as the AD who was in charge when that happened. Um, and number two, I think we've got, what is it? Two more years to wait to see what the market is and the market like right now mm -hmm. is not good. ESPN's laying off and this is affecting the PAC 12 too. ESPN's laying off. I think Apple and Google are laying off and ESPN is saving up for the NBA contract. You know, how does that, if they want to be a player in this, if, you know, is is my company going to be a player in this? CBS is is NBC going to go balls to the wall and retain the contract? I don't I don't know those things, but I think it's going to be a while. Yeah. So, <laughs> the the interesting thing to me, Dennis, is like when Notre Dame was looking for an offensive coordinator when it when the field was wide open before it kind of narrowed down to the few. Some of the candidates were head coaches at group of five schools yeah. that, that yeah. those guys would be making more money as a coordinator yeah. and a power. So that gap is 
is really widening between Power Five and Group of Five. And do you foresee that kind of gap between SEC Big Ten and the other Power Five? Do you can you see that happening? I, I do. Um, look, it's already happening. I I've said this for a few years now. If Urban Meyer suddenly came on the market and was desirable, I can think of one school maybe in the Pac-12 that would that would pay him. Uh, number one, pay him. Number two, would want to pay him. Um, that's probably Oregon, maybe Washington. I don't know. But that's the big difference in, and forget about, if you can, the off-field stuff for a minute. We know his coaching chops, but I'm saying somebody like him who was to come on the market and suddenly was was available. Um, he wouldn't be available largely in the in the Pac-12. Um, you know, I don't know if he'd be available in the reconfigured, uh, big 12. And, and I, what I'm talking about available, I'm talking about, he'd be hired, be able to be hired there. Mm -hmm. And so you, you pick, you had a great example. Here's another one. Um, oh, what's his name at, uh, I think his name is the offensive coordinator at Colorado just came from Kent state. Sean, yeah. Sean Lewis, uh, Sean Lewis. Had a good promising career, but saw his path better as a power five coordinator than a head coach in the Mac. So I think, yeah, I think we're we're gonna see more than that. I think in the big picture, you're just seeing these schools try to get on, you know, the last train out of Saigon, the last helicopter out of Saigon. Schools are calling, trying to do whatever they can to get in other conferences. Uh, they're calling Brett Yormark. He's been public, the Big 12 commissioner about going after schools, they're calling him every day. Hey, can we get in? And I'm not saying the big 12 is the end all, but they're being very aggressive in the conversation, if nothing else, to maybe be one of those schools, if there is a breakaway, that it's the top three conferences instead of the top two. Dennis, if I made you, made you predict what would be that next big move in realignment, what would, what would you uh, see in your okay. crystal ball? Yeah, I think right now, if it happens, it would be some of those Pac-12 schools getting nervous about the lack of a deal and, you know, going to the Big 12. Um, you know, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but uh, it's pretty public. There have been conversations uh, with them, with Colorado, Arizona. I think they'd be the, the, the two most likely. And Brett Yormark thinks if he gets one, Others will follow uh, the four corner schools, um, uh, Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, Utah. Uh, and so if you're a president or AD of one of those schools, you can say whatever you want, but you've got to take care of your school. you got to take care of your football program. And if the Pac-12 is playing for peanuts uh, in the middle of the night on a streaming channel, that ain't good for recruiting mm -hmm. for starters. Um, you know, you got to give yourself, give those athletes every opportunity you can. So I, I would say that I'm not predicting it. I, I think the, the PAC 12 will survive in some form, whether it's with the 10 they have now, whether it's some sort of hybrid with the mountain West, but that's another problem. I think you guys think about this. I can't imagine a conference that has Stanford playing Fresno state. I, I just don't see that. I mean, it's just really, really, it gets really curious and complicated when you start thinking about that stuff. Interesting. Uh, my last one for you, Dennis, is Florida State is starting to kind of complain yeah. about what's going on in the ACC. 
do you think that's legitimately something we should pay attention to or are they just kind of posturing for something i don't know maybe uh the unequal revenue dis distribution yeah i mean they're they're definitely posturing what you're referring to is their ad bill offered or mike offered went uh it was a live stream of a board of regents meeting i don't know what they call them there maybe trustees um and it was very obvious it was a stage performance because he had these graphics and here's how far we are behind these <laughs> other leagues and and we carry most of the juice in the acc well there's one big problem they don't have any leverage that contract that we keep hearing about to best of my knowledge is ironclad till the year yeah. 2036 now they have lawyers at every school in the acc trying to find a way out of it but even if they do you've got a couple things you can't assume the the sec would want florida state or clemson or miami or north carolina number two would their current partner the espn pay for it so we can have all these speculation we want there are several hoops to jump through and you'd be right if you're espn you'd be robbing peter to pay paul you know we've got cost certainty in this league why it wouldn't be in our best interest for fsu to go to to the sec because we'd have to pay them less uh, supposedly so i just don't see it happening there look we've got 13 years until that thing expires and yeah. there there are people smarter than us pouring over the the language of the contract to find a way through but i thought david hale of espn had an interesting tweet when all that was going on it would take approximately 350 million dollars for florida state to essentially buy its way out of the acc Ooh. i don't think there's a president alive who has the stomach for that dennis i mentioned earlier how we're on the verge of another portal wave with the portal opening up later this spring i'm curious from your perspective and maybe from a selfish point of view is it more interesting to cover college ball with all the movement in the transfer portal or is it more difficult to cover college football with all the movement in the transfer portal? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it, I think it's just become, it's been around for so long. The transfer portal came around, came in October of 2018 and the one-time transfer rule came in August of 21. I think it's just part of the landscape. Now I'm not one of those guys who tracks everybody. I know there are sites that that do that and good for them. And that needs to be done, you know, cause it, nobody announces it. The, the players sometimes do on Twitter, but there's no clearinghouse for it. Um, I think it's great. I think, I think you better, you know, coaches better get used to it. If they're bitching about uh, roster management, that's why you get 8 million a year. That's why you get 5 million a year. Right. We all have things on our plate that our bosses tell us to do extra. They don't, we don't <laughs> want to do, you know, do you want to get paid or not? You know, do you want to win or not? Do you want to stay employed or not? So, um, I think those who buy in the quickest, because th that isn't going away. The portal and the early transfer part, I mean, uh, the one-time transfer piece isn't going away. It's just not. Um, that's a legal liability for it, for the NCAA if they try to roll that back. In fact, that's why they did it, so they wouldn't get sued. So those who do it better, and I'm talking about Nick Saban, who, who may complain about it, but has done a heck of a job. Um, right. You know, um, I think Georgia had no transfers on last year's national championship team. They lost players, so they had to account for those guys, um, but had none that they brought in. Um, that's probably an anomaly. There are coaches that are trying to build entire recruiting classes with transfers. So I just think it's it's the reality of, of college sports, not football, not basketball, everything. 
and they look, the players deserve the freedom, just like any student. I, I keep coming back to this story about Bill Snyder a few years ago. There was a backup receiver, defensive back who wanted out and was kind of getting mouthy on Twitter. And Bill Snyder limited him to 35 schools that he couldn't talk to. And it was like, I think that for me did it. It's like, what right do you have to do any of that? Right. Um, these guys aren't, aren't um, these guys aren't uh, indentured, you know, they, they should be free like any, and they eventually, they eventually let them transfer, but that was the mentality. And now coaches got to get used to the new world. All right, Dennis. Well, that's all we have for you. We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us. Uh, hopefully you get to enjoy some downtime and we can get you back to uh, watching the masters this this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Go Rory. All right. Now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at EHansonND. First one we have is from Rhino1134 on the Insider Lounge. With the lack of practice access under Marcus Freeman, do you think it dampens the usual fan enthusiasm around spring ball? I'm not sure I have a really good pulse on that. I, I do know it makes it easier to do my job the more that we see. Mm -hmm. uh, Brian Kelly was more open than Marcus has been, but he's been willing to trade uh, the practice viewings that he's taken away for way, way more player access and assistant coach media access, which is also valuable. Uh, but it it is, I mean, if you're not watching practice, you know, and people say, well, how's so-and-so looking? Well, the one time I saw him, you know, um, so you're you're getting such a small sample size and you're really depending on the coaches to kind of tell you how people are progressing. And normally they're pretty accurate, but but not always. So I, I don't know how fans read into that. I think as long as you're winning, fans are willing to put up with whatever policies the coach has. Yeah, I don't, I think fans sort of get used to this. I mean, they sort of adapt to it and and sort of go along with it. I mean, this isn't much different than what was it was last year. And obviously the excitement was just naturally high because of Marcus Freeman putting together a staff and taking over post Brian Kelly. Um if there is like a like a lack of enthusiasm, maybe it has something to do with just sort of the the, the constant coaching carousel of this offseason. I think that drained people and there was lots of angst uh, associated with the offensive coordinator search. Um, so maybe people just got worn out and <laughs> are taking a break from that and are and then I know like as soon as we tell people, hey, the offense looked looked bad at practice on Saturday, and then everyone's <laughs> gets riled up or they're like, you're joking, right? Like, or then they're telling you to stop worrying about it. It's just one practice. And I'm like, well, I'm not saying I'm worried about it. I'm just telling you what, what it looked like. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I think, I, I think everyone's sort of uh, want for spring football coverage is different. Like, I think there's a certain segment of the fan base that just sort of tunes out and isn't that plugged in during the spring. And then there are other parts, other people that want, football coverage year round, which is why we have jobs the way we have jobs. Uh, so I still think there is some enthusiasm there. I do think that um, it's a bit different. And I, I, I don't know. I, I would think, especially with Sam Hartman, that would feel different, but I think maybe like the way Notre Dame is approaching it and sort of deferring and like not trying to 
make Tyler Buckner feel like he is a de facto, like he has no chance of being a starting quarterback. And maybe that plays into sort of Notre Dame not really playing up. It's, it's big off season addition and Sam Hartman and stuff like that. So I think there will be plenty of enthusiasm for the season when it comes around. But um, I do think at times this spring, I was like, okay, I don't know what people are most interested in, what, what they want to hear from us. And they're there. And so far there aren't not a lot of like young and upcoming guys to talk about. It's like, we're talking about a lot of the same guys so far. We haven't, we like during the off season, you and I talk about, well, this is a big spring for Tyson Ford. It's like, well, there's not really much happening there yet. So um, I think sometimes that can be, uh, that can sort of stoke enthusiasm in the fan base if we're talking about a, a new and young up and coming. And so like anytime we post something about the freshman wide receivers, people are very enthusiastic about that. But if I tell you something about Jaden Thomas, for instance, people are like, well, whatever. Um, so I think, I think sometimes that that plays a role as well. All right, next question is from at Charles W. Wolf. Have you noticed any differences between how spring ball was run in Freeman year two versus first year as head coach? Yeah, I think the kinds of drills are different. The sequence of drills are different. Um, we haven't had, you know, we get to see some partial practices and then one full practice. The ones that we've been in, they've all been indoors. So we haven't seen them use all three practice fields. So maybe it's more similar or more different once they're using all the fields. It's been in a compressed space. Uh, but yeah, I, I can see. And he seems like, you know, he's more fluid between what what he's doing. I mean, he definitely looks like he knows that he's in the right place. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, and it, it's different than Brian Kelly's practices too. So uh, but he he definitely made a concerted approach to improve things in practice. Uh, he wasn't just going to kind of sit on what they did last year. So it should look different. It's by design. Yeah. Do you remember last year? I don't remember if it was in the fall or the spring or both. Like one of his big things was like, we're going to do a competitive period, like right right at the jump. Yeah. Um, and they're not they're not. Do we haven't seen them do that, at least. Um, if they're doing it, they're doing it before they do stretching. But they <laughs> haven't even talked about it. Right. Sometimes they would have that on social media, mm. something that was odd. So maybe that's something to ask Marcus about. But yeah, we haven't seen it, and uh, um, so 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 I mean that's so that's one difference um, worth mentioning. I, but like overall, I don't know that like the overall philosophy or anything behind that has changed. I think it's pretty similar. I mean, the the drill differences I, that probably has a lot to do with like just assistant coaching preference. If you got a new assistant coach, like Mar Marty Biaggi, uh, the spe one of the special team drills had like two by fours. <laughs> I was like, what are, what are they doing? I've never seen this one before. Um, so there's uh, uh, every coach has its own has their own like yeah, like and, Gino and drills. Gino will have all five quarterbacks involved very early in throwing yeah. and they kind of rotate through patterns. That That's something that's a little bit new. Whereas um, the early quarterback drill last year was they would rotate through, but they wouldn't all be throwing at the same time. And they were throwing to a stationary spot first in the pocket and then secondly moving. Right. And that's where you could tell like Tyler Buckner was so much better than everybody else on the move. Um, but is, you know, purely in the pocket. I mean, like Angeli looked good doing that. Right. 
All right. Next question is from Mr. Nev at Mr. Irish Red. Two questions. What is the most overrated thing of spring ball? And can the men's basketball program return to the 70s with top recruiting? The most over th- overrated thing in spring ball is that the belief that what you see in the blue gold game is what you'll see in September. <laughs> and the 70s, wow, we're going back a ways. I mean, that's even when I wasn't that old of a I person. was going to say, what's your recollection of the Notre Dame basketball teams in the uh, 70s? I can remember them because they were this great independent. I mean, you're talking about the Lambeer, Trapuca, Paxson, David Rivers, that group. Um, and, and they did recruit pretty well. Uh, I don't know that you want to really compare it to the seventies. I, I would say though, if you can recruit, you've always got a chance to be good. I mean, you need, uh, somebody that knows how to roll the ball out there and, and, uh, have some strategy. I mean, I think that's what separates the good teams from the great teams is the coaching, but I mean, the talent is so important and we saw that this year i mean is mike bray a worse coach uh on you know on game day this year than he was the previous year i don't think so but boy he did a poor job of roster management and getting a center either through the portal or through uh recruiting and so uh but i think notre dame could be a bigger player in recruiting but they're still going to have the uh, in, in this new world, they're still going to be hampered by limited transfer portal pool. You know, they're going to be able to get grad transfers and they're going to be able to maybe get freshmen through the door, but it's going to be hard to get like a junior uh, that doesn't have his degree yet. And so, you know, we'll see how Micah Shrewsbury manages that. Yeah, I, I'll i start with the basketball one first. Obviously, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not familiar with the seventies basketball uh, program. And and so, uh, so I did, I did look up like what the, actually the thing that I did was like, look at like year end AP polls in the seventies and Notre Dame was pretty consistently either top 10 or top 15. There were a couple of years where they weren't. Um, and I, I think that's kind of hard anymore for a lot of programs in, in college basketball these days, like even Kentucky and North Carolina can't consistently or can't like every year guarantee they're going to be a top 15 team. Um, because I think obviously there's different models across college basketball, even with the one and dones, like sometimes you might miss on two of those guys and it doesn't go as planned or the teams don't come together in the same way as you want them to. So if we're talking about like, will Notre Dame be a top 15 team seven out of the next nine years or something like that under Micah Shrewsbury, I think that that seems a little unattainable to me. Um, I think it would be a little bit more up and down. Now, the, I think the goal is that the downs don't look like this past year for Notre Dame um, or some of the downs that that Mike Bray had. I think you you try to raise the floor um, and be more consistent there. Um, so I think that is achievable. But, yeah, I mean, I don't think that Notre Dame is all of a sudden going to be a recruiting power in college basketball. Um, but I do think Micah Shrewsbury is going to be able to build something where he can get guys in here that he can develop, the guys that are um, – that have talent. I, I think certainly you, I anticipate there being a, a bit of an emphasis on keeping some guys from in state that aren't from the five, seven, four area code, because that seems to be uh, the limit uh, of, of Notre Dame's in-state recruiting in the last five or 10 years. Um, so I think that uh, 
there's reasons to be optimistic about what Micah Shrewsbury can build, but I think we would be getting ahead of ourselves to sort of predict sort of the consistent level of success that Notre Dame was having back in the 70s. I think one of two of my criticisms of Mike Bray, and I think he did a lot of good things, but I think one was, I don't think Mike Bray believed they could win a national championship at Notre Dame. And I think if you have that ceiling in your mind, whether it's realistic or not, you're going to recruit to that. You're going to play to that. And I, and I believe that he thought that I thought the other thing was just so stubbornly sticking to a short rotation, even if you're beating Bryant by 50 points, right. You know, it was so seldom that those other kids got to play. It was like, if they had a great week in practice, what was the reward for that? Yeah. And it's, and it, it, I don't know that it was, it probably was not ever really a great strategy, but in the transfer portal there, it seems asinine. Yeah. <laughs> what, why would a young kid sit there for two years and then finally get a chance to play? He's going to go somewhere where he has a chance to play. I, I just thought it was ridiculous. And, you know, I've seen other teams be very successful doing both. I mean, I was around when Ray Meyer had the team where he just played five guys. <laughs> uh, but but I, I've, you know, early in my career, I covered Indiana and I covered Purdue. And on both those teams, you would see lineup changes based on a great week of practice. Sometimes they go nine deep. Sometimes they go six deep in a game. It just kind of depended on who they were playing and how they were playing. And I thought that that's motivation. I mean, again, if if there's such a difference between player seven and player eight on your team, then you need to revamp recruiting. Right. And it, it like what's the motivation to get better if you're if you're in that top seven? Like no one's taking your spot. You're still yeah. gonna play. Um, so uh yeah, I mean, I think all those criticisms were fair uh, of Mike Bray, um, even though he did have – he certainly found success from time to time and um, had a long career at Notre Dame. Um, in terms of getting back to Mr. Nev's question about uh, the most overrated thing of spring ball, I, I, just in general, like any sort of grand statement of what the team will be based off of what we saw in spring, I think it's a bit overplayed. Like what I think there's interesting sort of progress that's made on an individual basis. But like, I'm not like yes, the offense was bad, and I and I have not sugarcoated that from the practice that we saw on Saturday. But to me, that's not like a reflection of what Jared Parker's offense is going to be in the fall, or like that Jared Parker's in over his head. Like I feel like that would be a foolish statement to make. I think spring practice is more about individual progress and how guys are coming along and fitting into their system and finding new ways to impact the team than to sort of like change my mind about like okay Notre Dame's gonna gonna lose three games this season instead of losing one game based on what I, what I saw this spring next question is from Mike Ryan at ML Ryan 36 Harry Heastan used to play the five best offensive linemen I understand that different linebacker positions have different skills but do you think ND is maximizing their talent at linebacker yes I do think they're maximizing their talent at linebacker I think what would make it appear to challenge or what would challenge maybe that way of thinking are two things one is Jack Kaiser's limited role I think Jack Kaiser at least last year was at least linebacker number two um and he's kind of playing out of position um the other thing is they're not playing their most talented athletes 
if you said the three most, the three best athletes at linebacker, right? That would be probably Jalen Sneed, uh, Drake Bowen, and uh, maybe Nolan Prince, Ziegler, maybe Nolan Ziegler, maybe Prince Collie. But those younger classes have these dynamic athletes with high recruiting pedigree, mm-hmm. and and they're bumping up against some three star guys uh, who play football very well. And so that also kind of creates that thought of, are they playing the best players? Because like I did a story last week on Prince Collie and Prince's thought about why he wasn't playing more was because he wasn't mastering the mental side of things. You know, the calls would come in from the sideline and, you know, he's shrugging his shoulders and he's, you know, not being in the right place. And that could lead to a first down or a touchdown. And so now he's he's embraced more of that side of it, mm-hmm. and he combines it with his excellent athletic ability. And now you've got a dilemma because he really is coming on, and Maris Leofow, who's a pretty darn good athlete, has really got to step it up to fend off both Kaiser, who I think is is more assignment correct, and then Prince Kali, who's more dynamic. So um I don't know if I just confused you more than <laughs> answering your question, but that's how I see it. Yeah, no, I think it made sense. I, To me, I would say that Notre Dame isn't maximizing their talent at linebacker if Maris Leofile leads the team in snaps next season. Right. Um, like that, I don't – I don't, I don't understand why that was the case last season. Although like if, if Prince Collie is like, Hey, I wasn't ready to do certain things. I, even if I thought I was ready to do that and I understand my deficiencies, but even then, like I would have rather played Jack Kaiser at that position some more times than, than to keep Marist out there as much as he was. So I think they need to play more guys and be more creative with them. I think we've seen some signs of that this spring in terms of what they're doing. I mean, we saw Marist Leofile lining up, in some pass rushing situations. And I, I feel like that's a creative way to get him involved um, and maybe have him utilize a skill set that um, is there within him, but hasn't been tapped into fully. Um, so I, I'd like to see a little bit more of that and finding different ways to use those guys in combinations with each other and finding different packages that they make more sense in um, together as a unit um, to get the, to get the most out of those guys. Like when Jalen Steed's out there, like, you're not putting Jalen Sneed out there to like stand in the middle of the field and, and do run fits. Like, I don't know that that's exactly the way you want to use Jalen Sneed. I think you want to use him in different ways. Um, let him run around, let him, let him rush the passer, um, let him cover some guys. Um, so I think those are all sort of things that Al Golden needs to figure out how to, how to get the most out of those guys. Next question is from Marie, Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. After seeing a full practice, are you more, less, or equally concerned about the guards? With what you saw, do you think Notre Dame will more more aggressively pursue the transfer portal? What are the odds that they can get a guard in the transfer portal who could start? Um, I guess I would be equal or less concerned about the guards uh, from a starter standpoint. I think I love Shrouth. You know, it's one of my football crushes. I, um, so I think he's going to be outstanding. And, you know, he's a young player. So, you know, he's got to get that, um, some of the mistakes out of his system. But boy, he's coming on. And Christophic, I mean, when I've watched him, 
He plays with a lot of confidence in practice because he's assignment correct. So if you, if that's not good enough, if you want a brawler who's also assignment correct, then you probably need to go to the portal to get that other starter. I think you're fine with Shrouth. Um, I don't think Michael Carmody's a starter. And I don't think Rocco's a starter. I, I don't know what's happened to him. Um, I think maybe he felt like um, he deserved it based on his reputation coming in and maybe didn't work hard enough at it. I mean, he's, he certainly had, according to, you know, people that you talk to, he's had trouble remembering plays and so forth. I, I mean, when I watched him, he didn't look like a guy that was hungry. Now, again, I'm not watching him the whole practice. Tyler was watching the uh, defense. I was watching the offense, but in the Tyler sneaks and watches the offensive line. So I'll have to get his, his take on it. I think if you're worried about depth, then yes, but but then you're probably going to go after a starter if you're going if you're worried about depth. <laughs> Again, then you can't do that without a ripple. If you go get a starter for Christophic, Christophic's probably going to go somewhere else and play where he can start. And and I would probably say the same thing with Rocco. If Rocco's not a starter. I'm not sure that it's a easy conversation to get him to stick around. Yeah, I mean so, it, it's like it's like the Kane Madden Dylan Gibbons situation. Like Notre Dame was like, we'd rather have Kane Madden than Dylan Gibbons. And was that the right choice? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think Dylan Gibbons is the greatest offensive lineman in the world, but Kane Madden certainly didn't meet a lot of the expectations that people put on him when he came into Notre Dame. Um, and I thought he was probably one of Notre Dame's worst, if not the worst. The irony is Florida State wanted Kane Madden, too. <laughs> right, right, above, right. Above Dylan Gibbons. I mean, he was an All-American, but it didn't project one up from group of five to power five. You know, he was not a power five athlete. He might have been a, pow a power five technician, but he was definitely not a power five athlete. So I, I said equally in terms of, after seeing the practice, or am I more or less or equally concerned? I said equally. I, I don't think anything's really changed in my mind. It uh I have faith in Andrew Christophic and Billy Shrouth. I, I don't know that I saw like a ton in practice. It's like, yes, this is why I'm confident about these guys. Um, but um I don't know, maybe I'm just being stubborn and like I, I think they'll get they'll figure it out. They're still working through things. Um I I do believe in the the value of the experience that Andrew Christophic has, um, and then I would like for them to have a third guy that they feel confident in that could they could put in there, and so that would be like the reason to maybe go to the portal. But that's that's it's a hard that's a hard like you said that's a hard thing to do if you take go get someone that's you're asking someone else to leave essentially, um, and now maybe the people that end up leaving are people that you wanted to leave in the first place, but. Um, I think that's something that you have to sort of weigh I, I, in terms of like, what are the odds that they could get someone who could start? I, I, I have no way of like putting in odds. I, I, it all depends on who goes in the portal and like the, we haven't, the, the second wave of portal entries hasn't happened yet. Um, I, I looked at our rivals transfer tracker, um, with our position rankings and we don't have it break broke down between tackle and guard, but of of the offensive linemen who are ranked among the top 500 um in the overall transfer portal rankings by rivals 
there's only three offensive linemen who aren't committed to a, a school yet. So like, there's not like there's a lot of guys that are left over. So right now the odds are low, but obviously it's going to change here in a couple of weeks when the portal opens back up um, and guys can start uh, putting their name in there. And maybe, maybe word gets out that Notre Dame still needs a guard um, and that increases your pool. And someone that's maybe on the fence about transferring is like, you know what? I could go into Notre Dame and start. I really like that opportunity. Let me go ahead and do that. Um, I'm not, I wouldn't, I'm not predicting that at this point, but yeah. I think I that's think certainly, a, I think it's a possibility. Landing spot where you say, well, you're going to play next to Joe Alt or Blake Fisher. Right. NFL guys will be watching your, you like, you're not going to be hidden. Like people will be watching your tape. That is a fact. All right. Next question is from Russo 1957. Since Tyree is having trouble catching the ball in the slot, should Indy move Jabron Payne to slot and Tyree back to running back? I think that's a reasonable question, um, but I think you got to give him time to kind of get used to the different angles, the different routes that he's running. And I think he's not used to catching the ball in traffic too much. This guy is dynamic in space. He's lost some weight, so he's quicker. And just talking to the other running backs today, and I know uh, Tyler talked to Dylan McCullough. I mean, they're all saying, you know, the days that we weren't there, uh, Chris Tyree's catching the ball and and they can see some really good strides. So I, I'd keep him at uh, and 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 there's no reason to move him back to running back. I mean, then you have six running backs and uh, he would have limited carries there. If he wants to play in the NFL, his best pathway, he's not an NFL running back, but he could be an NFL wide receiver. He does have the speed. So if I were him, I would stay. And um, and just keep working on, you know, getting more confident catching the ball in traffic. Yeah, expanding his skill set. And I would, if we're talking NFL, like pushing to be an even better returner in in both punts and kick returns. I feel like that would be a potential avenue for a, a some staying power in the NFL for him. But yeah, but I mean, if we're looking at from Notre Dame's point of view, um, and you're not talking about what's best for Chris Tyree. Um, I still think it would be too early to sort of make that switch. Um, and like, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't recall Chris Tyree ever really having catching issues as a running back. Right. Like that was never something I associated with him. So like, it's different. So like, why, why I don't, you can't assume that Jabron Payne's going to be a good, good at running wide receiver routes and catching the ball because he's good at it from the running back position. Cause Chris Tyree was perfectly adept at, at, at catching the football out of the backfield there you're asked to do different things in those roles. And I think even if Chris Tyree does have some issues, I think you just find better ways and, and like play to his strengths in terms of using him as a pass catcher. Then you're not running, you're not running Chris Tyree on a post route. Like for instance, like you're doing different things with him that best utilize his skill sets. Like he give him short passes, give him, give him opportunities to make the catch when there's not guys bearing down on him and then let him get the ball in space and make some moves. Um, I think that's probably the best outcome for Chris Tyree. And now the hope would be he could continue to expand upon that and, and give you more than that. But I think at a minimum, that's a good thing to have. And um, if you ever need him at running back, you can make that transition pretty easily. I don't think that's something that you have to to worry about until it becomes a need the, the, uh, in terms of returning him to the running back position. Next question is from Nathan Reynolds at Enforcers2117. What true freshman do you think will have the biggest impact on the team this year? 
You know, I thought I'd have a bigger list. I, I narrowed it down to four um, because there are some really good players in this class, but there isn't always opportunity uh, immediately for them. So I went with Christian Gray, Rico Flores, who's a Christian Gray's a cornerback, Rico Flores out of those freshman wide receivers, Ben Minnick. Uh, they're going to need him as far as depth, and he's been pretty good so far. And then maybe Brennan Vernon, the defensive end uh, from Ohio, who's a June enrollee. Uh, I think everybody else has really got to jump over a lot of people to make an impact, unless I'm forgetting somebody. I don't think so. If if you had to pick just one of those, who would you pick? I would say Christian Gray. I just have a feeling about him. Yeah. Um, I agree with your list. Um, I would probably go Flores over Gray. Um, number two for me. Yeah, I, 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 I listen to any argument for either or. Um, I, I just think it's a little bit easier to get involved in the offense if if Notre Dame needs him and wants him to, than to like Christian Gray. I mean, he certainly could break into the cornerback rotation there, but. It, it's all of a sudden seems like a position that isn't like dying for a freshman cornerback, which obviously they kind of, they ended up being that last year when their freshman cornerback ended up being their best cornerback. Uh, so we'll see if they, if, if the position is as strong as it seems like it might be, then maybe they don't need Christian Gray, but I do think he would be ready and capable if needed. So I think that would be, that would nudge me over to the, the Flora side. Now, obviously the, the wide receiver room is improving too. So that could, that could prevent him from making an impact as well, but um, yeah, in, t- in terms of need, Ben Minnick might be at the top of the list because the safety the safety depth chart is thin. Now, obviously, when you get Thomas Harper back, um, he could play safety. Um, and they're not they haven't closed the door on potentially adding another transfer there as well. So, um, that could he could he could fall back down the list after this spring. All right, last question is from Jack Quinn at JQ six thousand and eight. Which is more likely, Sam Hartman wins the job and we see Tyler Buckner in a situational role similar to 2021, or Hartman wins the job and Buckner transfers? I'll hang up and listen. My my answer is neither would be the most likely answer. Given the two options you presented me, I would say Hartman wins the job and Buckner has a niche role. All right, I would go the other way on that. I would say Hartman wins the job and Buckner transfers. I just... I just don't know. I, if Sam Hartman is your starting quarterback, when when and why are you taking him off the field? Like, I I I, I think you you would have to be very deficient in other areas that would that would feel like you needed to do that. Now maybe right, there's like, I, I just don't think Buckner's going to transfer. I, I don't think he's of that mind. Now maybe that would change, but I think he's convinced that Hartman is going to help him be the starting quarterback in 2024. Well, yeah, I mean, what window am I getting for transferring? Does he have to transfer before the season starts, or do I get to, like, next offseason? Because uh, um, I think that – I I think he means in this May window. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't predict that. Well, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't predict that to happen either. But um, – so, but I, I'll, I'll st- I'd still stick with that answer. I just don't see the – the use of of having a Tyler Buckner uh, package um, in the offense when you have 
should have so many other offensive weapons with a quarterback that can get the ball to all of those weapons. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. All right, that is it for today's episode of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all your popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with the person in your life who loves jelly beans the most. We want to get to 100 ratings on Apple Podcasts in 2023, and we would love to get there by the Blue Gold game. We are up to 96 ratings, so find four of your friends and tell them to give us a rating on the on the Apple Podcast. Good rating, hopefully. Uh, well, well, I mean, we have so Not many good your crabby friends. I mean, we have so many good ratings that we can handle a few bad ratings. No, I, I'm teasing. Um, yes, preferably good ratings. Um, and we received a new review since our last podcast from Kirk from San Diego and now in El Dorado Hills, California, who I believe is a frequenter of Eric's chats. Eric and Tyler approach Eric and Tyler's approach to ND football is the best combining interviews with former players or experts in the know. They always bring a fresh perspective. The question and answer section allows them to share their vast knowledge, especially with tough questions from Marie B in Atlanta. Yes. You need to add the football never sleeps to your podcast feed as well as an audio version of Eric's chat transcript, Longtime fan. So thank you for the kind review, Kirk. Eric, do you just want to start like reciting you can just like you can just speak your chat transcript for me, and I can I can put it on the podcast. Do you want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. My mom says uh, when I talk to her on Skype, it puts her to sleep. Oh no! <laughs> she meant so as she a can't... compliment, but, but <laughs> she, she, so. she's not a fan of our podcast. Then. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. She just she just kind of nods <laughs> off. So that's funny. Well, uh, one more reminder that we're giving away 60-day free trials to new subscribers on InsideNDSports.com. So head over there and take advantage of that deal by Sunday with promo code NDRecruit60. We'd love to have your support there and see you participating on the Insider Lounge. We will be back next week for another podcast as we're barreling down on the Blue Gold game in two weeks. Uh, the feedback, um, as Kirk indicated, uh, of putting out our Football Never Sleeps YouTube show on the podcast feed has been positive. So I think we'll continue to do that. I ha I do have a proposal for those of you who listen to the podcast version of Football Never Sleeps rather than watch the video. Please head over to YouTube and still like the video for us as it does help us help our visibility. So there's no requirement that you have to watch, but just go hit the thumbs up and try to do that every time you listen to, to the Football Never Sleeps podcast version, and that would be greatly appreciated. And also, you can throw us a, a hit the subscribe button to our Inside Indie Sports YouTube channel as well. Um, again, even if you don't watch the videos, that still helps us. Um, until next week, stick with InsideIndieSports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs. <laughs>